Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Tour de France is coming. Well, fingers crossed. Anyway, the tour edition of Ruler magazine is definitely coming, though, through subscribers' letterboxes any time now. And I'm joined in our socially distanced South London Garden studio by some of the writers and photographers whose work appears in it. We'll be talking the greatest tours of all time, the chances of a wild card winner this year, maybe even a French winner. And we're also catching up with Stuart Clapp as he embarks on the most ill-advised journey since Burke and Wills went for a stroll in the outback. That's one for our many Australian listeners there. This is Ruler Conversations, brought to you by Lacquer, bicycle insurance powered by the community. I'm Ian Parkinson and I'm joined by Ruler editor Andy McGrath, executive editor Ian Cleverly and Maria David, who's written a fascinating piece in the latest edition about the long-standing rivalry between Maria Cannons and Jeannie Longo. Welcome all. First thing to say about this edition of the magazine is the cover, which features a striking image by Sean Hardy of, well, the invisible cyclist. There's sunglasses, there's helmet and there's a mask, obviously, but no actual head. Um, Whose idea was it? Uh, Was it... Kind of a bit of a like, kind of committee idea, wasn't it? Let, uh, let's, yeah. let's let's say it's a joint a joint effort <laughs> because I think you you point us towards the was it a New York Times cover where the, the starting point? I think yeah, and maybe a bit of Magneto magazine. But then like you developed it, and then Sean put his spin on it. Yeah, well, I actually caught up with uh, Sean, who actually had the task of taking the photo and putting it together and asked him how he did it. The concept of the hollow was really because I didn't want any identity to be linked to it. So I could have stacked them on the floor and taken a picture, but it, I wanted it to have a, have a shape, especially with a mask. So we, the originally we thought, well, we just, we can put it on a balloon, pop the balloon, and then when the balloon's popped, everything will be in place. That's what, in my head, that seems pretty straightforward. Um, that didn't work at all. Like the minute the balloon popped, they all went in different angles. It just, it just didn't work. Well, so you were trying to capture that moment when the balloon disappeared, but all the objects were in the same place. Yeah, I thought that would work. Obviously, I didn't study physics hard enough at school, but um, <laughs> I just thought they'll, they'll all be in the same place, right? The camera's fast enough to catch it, but it didn't. Every time I took the shot, everything was wonky and it all looked a bit odd and it, it was just more work than it than I thought it would be. So then we tried it with a mannequin. That works, but I don't have the skills to make a mannequin disappear and then build the background. You know, like you can see the helmet and you can see in the helmet. Didn't know how to do it. So we did sort of 
think, shall we just use the mannequin and have just a mannequin face there? But then that seemed lazy. So um, we did everything with wires in the end and then photoshopped everything together. So the helmet and the glasses are together with wires. But the mask is on my partner's face and then we got rid of her face. And the arm is mine, uh, but I had to shave my arms. I have very, very, very hairy arms, and that doesn't look very athlete, so I've shaved them. There's a lot of work goes into what is a very striking but very simple image. Yeah, a lot more than I imagined, if I'm honest. Because um, when lockdown happened in March, I'd been doing the basics of Photoshop, but I wanted to grow that to see if I could yeah, just something to do in lockdown instead of taking photographs it was like well let's learn photoshop so this was a huge jump from removing one or two things from a photograph to actually building a hollow face was huge so there was a lot of 4am finishes um and then getting up the next day pretty early it was just it was a few days to be honest and it was great but yeah it was difficult and stressful <laughs> and itchy once the hairs on my arms started growing back. Is it worth it when you saw the cover, though? Yeah, really pleased. I mean, this is my first Rouleur cover, so this is huge for me. And and to get the cover that was for this moment and time, you know, with all the uh, COVID-19 that's going on and everything else, even in five years' time or whatever, if you see this cover, you'll, you'll know what it is. But if you don't then you'll want to know what it is. Like, why, why have they got a mask on? Like Sean Hardy, uh, pleased with the result there. It is actually a really striking, uh, great cover, isn't it? Yeah. At first, I wasn't sure about it. But now I think it's a perfect cover. Because like, I, I was thinking, like, how much should we acknowledge the pandemic like with the Tour de France on? But this is going to be the tour with masks everywhere. Like, it's kind of like looking into the future, that cover that we devised in, what? Uh, April, May. I mean, I think it is very much of the moment, actually, yeah. I mean, just hearing about, you know, the the, the need to use masks and everything, and certainly uh, by the time the tour starts, it will be just masks all over the place. Well, yeah, let's talk about the tour. There's a, a nice um, profile of Thibaut Pino by um, Jeremy Whittle in the magazine, and basically everything is turned upside down this year, isn't it? We, we, we're still not 100% sure how everything's going to work, and as for kind of assessing people's form, that's out the window as well, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, certainly um, at the start of the year, you know, sort of Group Armour FDJ, they seemed very much, you know, sort of on the game, and and you know, obviously, you know, Mark Maddio, you know, you know, he was obviously in in sort of typical uh, bullish uh, form there, and uh, and Tivo Pino seemed quite enthusiastic too, um, but I mean. I'm not entirely sure because they they were also talking about you know the threat of Ineos and uh, Jumbo Visma, um, so you know they they still saw themselves as as among the contenders um, and Thibaut Pinot as well. But somehow I also got the impression that there might be a, a slight doubt, you know, sort of at the backs of of their minds, you know, particularly with uh, some of the things that have happened uh, to Thibaut in the past. Yeah, he does seem to have a sort of cloud of bad luck around him, doesn't he? And that's never a good thing when you're a professional sports person. Not really. Um, I know they, they talked about a lot of the uh, the different things that they have, and and they even they didn't they didn't use the word marginal gains, but they had a sort of a French equivalent that was moving in that direction. <laughs> so, uh, uh, and I think, and in fact, they I think they need a Steve Peters really. Well, talk. Speaking of uh, marginal gains, what is going to happen with Ineos this year? They can't take Froome. 
in my opinion. Well, they can't take all three, can they? Froome seems quite determined uh, to have a go at it, though, doesn't he? But you can't pick someone who's leaving in a few months' time, it, uh, someone that you haven't backed, who you're allowing to leave for a kind of lesser team. Kind of no offence to Israel's side of the nation, but they are a lesser team to Ineos. That move shows they're backing kind of Bernal and Thomas, and putting Froome in there makes it ev- even more complicated. And really, it's already complicated with two leaders, so... And the, the thoughts of uh, the thought of having a three-way Movistar style kind of let the road decide uh, notion is, you know, I know it's well proven to be a complete farce. So they're not going to do that. So at the moment, who do you think is is favourite? Is it a year for a wild card win? I think we're going to see a bit of a reaction to last year's tour and a bit of a kind of racing lockdown. Like things will be tightened up. Like nobody will let Julian Alaphilippe get anywhere. Uh, up the road, Ineos would have looked at what didn't quite work out last year and tried to be even stronger. On the other hand, as you say, we don't know anything about form. There's been next to no racing before the tour. That you'd think there are going to be some surprise factors, like maybe a, and I apologise for our Slovenian listeners if I get this wrong, but maybe Tadej Pogacar could surprise everyone. I think that he's been talked up and he, and he certainly showed what he's got at the Vuelta last year on the podium. Oh, to my mind, it's Bernal's again. I think where Geraint Thomas came unstuck last year was having been tour winner, he probably uh, accepted too many invitations to this, that and the other. And it kind of, he never kind of got quite got back in the game. And I, I mean, I'm not sure about Bernal, but I haven't really seen, you know, him in that kind of he probably hasn't had the opportunity to well be exactly <laughs> exactly so yeah it might have done him a load of good you know maria who do you think uh, who who's your favorite i'm i'm tempted to go with with bernal's actually you know i think i do get the impression that you know he's sort of remained quite conscientious and you know obviously he's spent time as well in in colombia and i think just the fact that that penultimate stage you know on on planche de belfi uh, surely that i'm thinking that would surely play into his favor you know, the sort of, you know, a climbing stage like that so so close to the end, you know. I know that, again, you know, I, I was referring to Thibaut Pino, but I know that's in his sort of his back garden, and so I know he'll be trying for something. But I think that, um, you know, if there's any sort of um, sort of uh, tightness at the top, you know, if, if, if the uh, time uh, differences are, are short, I think that, say, Egon Bernal would probably have the edge. Okay, well, it's going to be interesting to see. Elsewhere in the magazine, um, Rilleur writers pick their favourite tours of all time, and they range from uh, 1948 to 2019, which was actually picked by uh, you, Ian. So uh, what makes a good tour? I mean, if you're presented with 100 or more years of, of, of tour to pick a favourite, what makes a good tour? For me, and I could be accused of not having a very long memory, uh, having <laughs> picked last year's tour, but for me, it has to have a little bit of everything. It has to have drama. The GC battle has to be not settled until the the closing stages. Yeah, a little bit of everything. You know, a little bit of incident, a little bit of drama, a couple of Frenchmen possibly winning and then not, and then you know a, a Colombian winner as well. So a first, a first for Colombia. So there's all sorts of elements in that. But it was interesting what some of the some people did pick as their favourite tour, and it was very. You know, we did say to our contributors, it's what makes it special to you, you know, and it might have been the first one you went to, 
or the first one you saw on TV. Or So even though it may be a dreadful race and there may have been people excluded for drug tests and stuff like that, it can still be the one that sticks in your memory, you know, for whatever reason. Um, Andy, you chose 2003, which was that the first one that you really kind of followed? Absolutely, yeah. I was watching it every day, uh, like as a teenager in South London, and I was obsessed with it. And I think probably for most of us, that first tour is crystallised firmly in our memory. Uh, there's so many random things that come back to me even now, like even the breakaways. Like kind of even the No Hope teams, like Jean Delatour, I remember. I think they're a jewelry maker from France, and it, it just makes me smile even talking about it. Because uh, 2003 isn't uh, an obvious one, is it? I mean, I'm struggling to remember 2003 that clearly, but it was kind of um, Armstrong was still pretty much in his prime, wasn't he? That's why it was so good because that's what you need for most tours, uh, most great tours, that they upend the status quo, what you expected. Everyone had had years of Armstrong dominance. It was getting pretty dull. And suddenly you had Jan Ulrich coming back, roaring back on this ragtag like Bianchi team. You had the Uskeltel kind of duo, I think Mayo and Zabeldia, in that brilliant jersey, fluorescent orange, really troubling Armstrong. But it was more, it was all kind of orbiting around the fallibility of Armstrong that suddenly he was going to fall. It really seemed possible. And he did fall on Lazard Den, you know. That, that was the spectator's crash. handbag uh, thing, wasn't it? Or the or a musette? Or a... That was the one, yeah, it was a musette, yeah. And of course he then rose and caught up and won. And still still people thought Ulrich could have uh, beaten him in the time trial because he had put a minute and a half into him in an earlier one. It was just nip-tuck from pretty much all the race. That said, the first week was soporific. Like, it, it's kind of funny what your memory... Like, I told myself, all right, it is the best tour that I remember. And it, it still is. But the first week was one of those the first, dull, the first flat... Weeks, the first weeks of nothings. tours always were. Yeah, they? they always I mean, were, yeah. Back then, it, it, they, it, it seemed to be that was the formula. Well, let's, let's have a, a dull first week with some a few sprints at the end. And... With a massive crash as well. Yeah, there was the crash, and I think... Because I think that was where um, we all took, like, Tyler Hamilton to our hearts, you know, because... He effectively rode the whole of the tour, you know, sort of with his arm in a, a sling, more or less, you know, after that, that crash. That's right, and he even won a stage, I think, two weeks later with a broken collarbone. Have you watched it since? Have you gone back and, and watched any of it since? Because, or do you not want to do that because it might upset your memories? No, I've watched it since. There's been some long hours on YouTube watching highlights, and it still excites me the same, even though I think I, I kind of allude to in the article that we know what was going on then much more and I was very naive then yeah it was also the heyday of doping basically wasn't it yeah one of them (laughs) yeah one of the many of cycling (laughs) I guess to the layperson though they were celebrating it it being um the 100th year wasn't it you know it was exactly 100 years since the first one so it started in Paris by the Eiffel Tower it it even had that visual grandeur so Maria what um uh, we've kind of sprung this on you a bit but what uh what would be your favorite yeah I guess I mean, I, I'll have to say 2007. Now, some people might say, well, why 2007 when so many people were actually excluded from the race? But I think was that, that was the one that started in London. Yeah, that's or, right. Yes, yeah. they had the, the well, what was then known as the prologue um, that took place uh, in, in London. And um, yeah. And so, you know, loads of people, you know, sort of congregated, you know, sort of around the mall and. Um, Constitution Hill and so on and uh, yeah and, and I, I went there and you know just as a spectator and I watched and I think that the thing that 
I recall as well was just how fast uh, Fabian Cancellara went. You know, he was the, the winner on the day. And he was just like a machine, you know, sort of compared with everyone else. I mean, we'd all been sort of looking at, say, Bradley Wiggins, you know, who was also riding particularly well at that moment. And we were discovering that, you know, he was a, a pretty handy time trialist at the time. But still, you know, he still looked like he was standing still <laughs> compared, you know, with uh, Fabian Cancellara. And, you know, just his, you know, his muscles, you know, his quad muscles and everything and his calves. And it's just that that makes me now understand why everyone called him Spartacus. <laughs> yeah, so there was that. But then, of course, the, you know, there was the other side of things, you know, the sort of um, the exclusions of different riders. I remember, you know, sort of, I think there was one night when I was watching the news at 10 and they were talking about how Alexandra Vinokurov had been taken out of the race, you know, along with the rest of his team, his Astana team. And then suddenly they had this breaking news about the, the then new leader, um, uh, Rasmussen, I think, uh, you know, sort of saying, well, he's also been taken out. And I'm thinking, what? And, and, and then it, it did kind of become a bit of an embarrassment. And you were just thinking, well, who is going to be the leader? And damn, it was uh, <laughs> uh, someone else who later sort of uh, fell onto uh, bad ways, uh, um, the Spaniard. Uh, Alberto Contador. Yeah. Yep. Those are the days. Yeah. But it was just, it just seemed to be just a, a weird tour de France in the end, wasn't it? Um, well, some, you know, yeah, we, sometimes it's the weird ones that, uh, that you remember. Am I yeah. allowed to, am I allowed, because I'm very old, am I allowed to talk about 1986? Oh, which yes. would probably be my favourite one. <laughs> I remember it well. Yeah. Well, it was the, it was the, obviously it was the first uh, victory by Greg Lamont. Um, and in many ways it's sort of uh, ushered in the new era in some way because you know Greg LeMond the way he negotiated his pay deals with the teams his training his equipment yeah that is kind of the start of a of the new internationalization uh, of the sport but I remember it because I th- I'm pretty sure it was the first one that was actually shown every day on British TV because Channel 4 did the highlights and uh, it was the first time that uh, Phil Leggett and Paul Sherwin got together as a commentary team as well Sherman was still riding but it was a great it was a it, it was a great race anyway because um Le Monde not only had to compete with all the other riders he also had to compete with Bernardino his teammate who'd said he was going to help him to win but did he hell as like during when, when the actual racing started um so it was it was a great race but just being able to see it and every day set the vhs before you went to work and, and watch it on the uh, when you got home and and follow that soap opera of the tour which is what it is really isn't it a three-week soap opera every day was was quite remarkable and um Channel 4 at the time had their headquarters in Charlotte Street in the West End. And uh, the show, which was bizarrely presented by Richard Keyes, if you remember, was um, broadcast from the reception area. And the reception area was full of Tour de France bikes, memorabilia, jerseys. And we'd never seen anything like that at all. We'd never seen, I'd never seen a real Bianchi tour bike in, in, you know, in the flesh. Um, and I worked just around the corner from it. And I worked with um, Richard Keyes in local radio. I was on the news desk. He was a sports reporter. And he knows you know, a lot about football. But he knows nothing about cycling whatsoever. <laughs> so I used to go uh, around in my lunch hour and stand outside the uh, window where they were doing the show and make obscene hand gestures at him and uh, try and pull him off. But it was a, I, noticed, I think it is, yeah, it, I'd, I'd kind of followed tours before that, but 
you know, watching it unfold every night, even if you only got, I think we only got half hour highlights or something. Well, yeah, it was I mean, a half hour program, including ad break. So yeah. in the great scheme of things, you probably got 10, 15 minutes of actual yeah. bike racing. Yeah. I mean, but it still was try better telling than that to the young uns today. Know. You know what I mean? I mean you when you can sit, actually you can watch. sit down all day long yeah. and watch it, yeah, it's, and you uh, can sit down, and you can watch it without commentary, with commentary, with you know all kinds of different flavors of commentary. Um, yeah, there's all kinds of other opinions, all kinds of uh, different uh, favorite tours picked in the edition of the magazine, and uh, the tour edition, this uh, current edition, as will be the new norm, will not be available in newsagents. I understand, and going forward, that's. Um, it's only going to be available on subscription and that will be the same for the magazine. Yes, we you will be able to buy it directly from the Ruler um, website. But basically, as soon as lockdown hit, we were in a bit of a situation. If we can't sell on the newsstand, then that's a lot of issues that aren't going out. Um, and we put out the messaging, which was extremely effective, that if you don't subscribe, then... We ain't going to be here, the other side of this pandemic. Um, and we just have to keep pushing that. We're in a much better position than we were, but um, we can't sell on the newsstand. Apart from anything else, it's dreadful waste. If you look at it from an environmental situation, what people probably don't realise is that half the, you know, all the unsold magazines end up getting pulped. These are quite hard times for the magazine industry, the kind of traditional media industry all round, aren't they? Well, I'd, for anybody who's not... In the UK, they may not be familiar with it, but there's a, a monthly uh, music magazine over here called Q, which has been going for 34 years, I think. That went under this week. That went under. I was interested when I saw the tweet by the editor announcing that it was going to be the final edition, uh, which got something like 50,000 likes and thousands of retweets. But it's all very well doing that. But if you don't buy the magazine, then, you know, it ain't going to be there. So subscribe. There you go. Yep. Go to the Ruler website and uh, and subscribe. You're listening to Ruler Conversations, brought to you by Lacker, bicycle insurance powered by the community. So my name is Oren Peleg and I'm an investor in Lacker. Three things that really caught my eye. The first one is, is they're looking to change the insurance industry, which is a very large industry and I think needs change. The second thing is, is I'm deeply passionate about getting people onto wheel. We need to address our congestion and pollution crisis, and I believe that two wheels have a massive role to play in that. And the third thing is, I can see a growing trend around companies building on the strong communities that they have. And I think Lacquer's business model and the way they tap into the community of cyclists is something that's very much on trend at the moment. And you can find out more about Lacker's approach to insurance on their website, laka.co. Now, like most sports, cycling has had its share of personal rivalries over the year, those cases where the sporting competition turns personal. Copy and Bartoli, Fignon and Le Monde, uh, Wiggins and Froome, he know with pretty much anyone who got in his way. But sometimes overlooked is the rivalry between two of the most successful women riders ever, Maria Cannins and Jeannie Longo. And for the latest Ruler edition, Maria David has written about their rivalry. Um, Maria, what was it about their relationship that interested you? Yeah, it was just something that I'd always been fascinated about. Um, you know, I, I always had the impression that they seemed like slightly 
different characters, you know. Very different characters, weren't they? Yes, yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, So I really wanted to just investigate really a little bit more, you know, sort of how they related to each other. I mean, obviously, um, in the 80s, we we were aware of quite a lot of rivalries, say, in other sports, like you say, um, you know, say in tennis and athletics. So so I wanted to see what what it was like uh, between these two women. Because when you look at their profile, they both started off, you know, sort of as skiers uh, living in the mountains and then, you know, they'd been cycling, you know, just as a hobby. And then they were turning up at things like, you know, the Women's Tour de France, you know, which took place uh, between uh, 1984 and 1989. It was a really interesting time for women's racing, wasn't it? Because we, we had road racing at the Olympics for the first time and incredibly, you know, looking back now... A women's Tour de France. Yeah, there was there was a women's Tour de France, and it, and with stages taking place on the same day as the men's. I think they'd race prior to the men's race. Um, they didn't actually race every single day. I think it was just I think it was ten days, and they'd select certain stages. And I think they even had sort of days of rest in between. Um, so they weren't racing necessarily on on consecutive days. Um, but speaking to the two women, um, they did seem to feel that. Those days were were better than than now. Um, although there was less money, and and they certainly earned less because they weren't professional, uh, they didn't have professional status at the time. Um, the fact is that you know it was just it was just more fun. Um, you know there were more people on the roads. Um, I think um, uh, Jeannie Longo talked about there being like two and a half million people <laughs> that watched them. You know over over the two and a half week period, um, and and that they even had like coverage on the front pages of of newspapers like L'Equipe and Gazette dello Sport. And they shared the podium in, in Paris, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, they shared the podium. I think they, they even had the chance to actually do a lap of Champs-Élysées. Um, yeah, I think Jeannie Longo, she speaks fondly of going round, say, with uh, the likes of Stephen Roach uh, and I think in Greg LeMond as well. You know, and they, they actually did a lap and waving to everyone. So, uh, yeah, they, they really enjoyed that. So they, they both talked of that, Maria Cannons too, and they, they both recognised that that's something that just wouldn't happen um, in this day and age, you know. Um, well, obviously not, not a women's tour de France and, and still less coverage uh, on the uh, front cover of any newspaper. Um, but the thing that did interest me was the way that they spoke of each other. Because Jeannie Longo never really put herself out to make herself popular or liked yeah yeah i i mean i'd heard that actually from from certain other riders as well you know of that that period um they said that she was quite a, a fierce character and obviously you know very competitive as, as you would imagine but she was a, a bad loser and 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 i think maria cannon said she was quite she was quite moody as well you know like say she you know didn't win you know you could even see it and sense it on the podium you know her her anger and in fact, um, when speaking to Maria Cannons, she, she, she didn't seem quite as complimentary um, about Jeannie Longo as she was, say, about other races of the day, you know, say like um, uh, Connie Carpenter, who's, who's actually Taylor Finney's uh, mother. Um, yeah, she was very complimentary of, of her and, and other races um, of the day. It's almost as if she still sort of has this memory of, of Jeannie Longo just maybe not being the most pleasant of people which is a shame and and slightly awkward because then when I was speaking to uh, Jeannie Longo she was actually quite complimentary of Maria Cannons. But they don't talk to each other still do they? No, no, they don't. They don't keep in touch with each other directly. Although um, Jeannie Longo did say that there's a man who's in, into cycling that she she she's in touch with, 
um, on the Côte d'Azur and this man actually knows uh, Maria Cannon so she sort of like finds out how she's getting on and uh, I mean sadly for Maria Cannon she lost her husband um, actually in a road traffic accident a few years ago and I think Jeannie Longo did sort of send uh, a card you know and a message of condolences to uh, to the daughter to Conchetta Baldini, who is uh, uh, um, Maria Cannon's uh, daughter. It's odd, isn't it? Because a lot of those old rivalries from the 80s, you know, um, Borg and McEnroe and Ovet and Co, etc., they've kind of settled everything and they're all best friends now, aren't they? And it's it's slightly odd that um, that this rivalry still seems to be quite live. Yeah, I think they're quite different characters. I think that when Maria Cannon's race, I think I think she just she always just took it as just oh this thing I enjoy doing for fun and you always got the impression that she didn't really mind whether she won or lost. You know, she'd just go in, you know, try hard, do her best and you know, luckily for her, you know, she had that natural ability. So she'd win a lot of races, but even if she didn't win, you know, I mean, I mean famously um she was pipped at the post I think during one of the World Championships. Um, by Jeannie Longo on the Montello. And, you know, she was quite laid back about it. She doesn't really sort of understand why Jeannie Longo still has this this grudge. Um, I think that it's it might be to do with the Los Angeles Olympics, actually, um, because I think that was, you know, the first running of a women's race in, in the Olympic Games. And I think Jeannie Longo went there to win. And, and, you know, she was really going for it. I think she believes she could have been on the podium, you know, maybe come second um, at it. And I think it was perhaps in that closing uh, straight, the, the, the finish straight, I think there was some kind of skirmish or incident between uh, Cannons and Longo. And, and uh, Longo crashed and, and that was it, I think. And her derailleur was broken and, and she ended up finishing the race on foot. And I think she cried so much. And it, you almost get the impression that, she never got over that. Slightly controversially as well, I mean, Jeannie Longo carried on racing for years and years, didn't she? And um, in fact, she still races, doesn't she? Yeah, she still, she still races now on, on the Masters circuit. And I think that's something, you know, she'll never stop doing. I think she did admit, though, that she does it more for the social, you know, rather than for the, the actual sort of competitiveness. But, uh, but I think she's still competitive. I mean, she, she took part in the Vosgeny Cyclo Sportive last year at the age of, I think she must have been 60. And I think she, she was the first woman. She, she was the, the fastest woman in the race. That was one of the stories I really liked. I, I could tell she was starting off telling it like it's just a sporty bimble. But then the more she gets into talking, she's like, oh, we set off at 60 kilometres an hour. I found a really good group and I won my age category. Like, she, she's a born competitor. Yeah. And my impression is that Marie Cannons is not a born competitor, but is still extremely strong yeah. and competitive. And it's all very well kind of Longo saying she's doing it for socialising now. Uh, that's great. But I think what Cannons remembers is that for so long, and even after Cannons retired, she wasn't doing it to socialise, she was doing it to win anything and everything, yeah. which in one way is ex- incredible, is very laudable, but you're not going to make so many friends that way either. Yeah, and, and I, think, I think that's what, what seems to come through. I mean, Maria Cannon, she, she, yeah, she, can't, she just can't understand why anyone 
would just want to be winning even now at the age of, of 60. I mean, Cannons herself is, I think she's like 10, 10 years older than, than Jeannie Longo. So, you know, she's, she's really just, you know, she likes to go to, say, the marathon and, yeah, like you say, just go out on these leisure bike rides with, with young people. But she, she sort of, she sees um, Jeannie Longo as just this, yeah, almost like this freak of nature, like, you know, and wondering sort of, what else do you have going on in life? Surely you must have other things. Surely you must have, you know, a dog or children or something. <laughs> she doesn't get it. Uh, it's a fascinating story. Maria, thanks for uh, joining us. Now, uh, Rouleur's Desire Editor, Stuart Clapp, can't be with us in our socially distant South London studio because he's on a road trip on his bike. And it's not just any road trip, is it, Stuart? No, it's not. It's not a, a regular road trip. A little, about, I suppose about a week or so ago, two weeks ago, Adam Blythe created this WhatsApp chat, um, Friends Ride, and he said, uh, can we just get a date? Because we've all been on lockdown and there hasn't been a lot to look forward to, is there? He's been a bit, you know, social distancing. It's a bit bit depressing. And we haven't really been able to ride with our mates until now. And Adam um, created this group. And uh, so where we're going to go for a ride, and we started at my house, well, where are we going to ride to? And then we're going to go camping somewhere. Um, so... The idea got thrown around and then um, more people started getting added to the list. So there's a few of us. We're uh, sort of mid-ride at the moment. Uh, we're actually stopped off in a pub at the moment um, on our way to Whitstable. So you're riding from your house in Essex to Whitstable. And, and do tell us, who is with you apart from Adam Blythe? Sir Bradley Wiggins, um, his son Ben, uh, Matt Stevens, and Steve Cummings. Nothing could possibly go wrong with that lineup. Yeah, what could possibly go wrong? Apart from the fact that actually we were just in Tilbury and when we got to the crossing, uh, there's a ferry that come, comes across the Great End. Uh, it wasn't running. Uh, but while we're standing there, the guy that owns um, Thames Clipper uh, happened to be there with one of their Thames Clippers. And he said, I'll take you across. I suppose it, you know, it's quite handy that you're with um, someone quite recognisable. It's won a few Olympic gold medals. But yeah, so we're here. We're in a pub. It's, uh, it's very nice. It's blazing hot, actually. It's really, we picked the best couple of days for it. You've only been going a couple of hours and you're already in the pub. Yeah, well, it's important to keep hydrated. I think Brad learned that when he was at, at Team Sky with, um, with Dave Brown. Dave, Dave, I can't even say it. Uh, on, right. It's important to keep hydrated. I think, I think um, you know, I think the pros that I'm with have probably learned that over their careers. Uh, so, yeah, we've, we, just, we just stopped off and... Uh, in fact, they've, they've just bought another round. How much further have you got to go there? Oh, we've got quite a way, actually. We've got, um, we've, got an, we've got another 30k and then we've got a stop for lunch. And some drink, I imagine. Yeah, probably another one. It was a very warm day. It's important to keep hydrated and, uh, and uh, stay safe. And uh, well, apparently beer is isotonic, isn't it? Anyway, then we've got another 30k to go. And then we've got um, just a little drop down um, like for 5k after the last pub stop to be honest i haven't seen um sir bradley on a bike for for ages um he's is he still pretty handy on one <laughs> yeah i'll i'll say so um the thing is it's it's quite funny because you you sort of there there are quirks right that you see when people ride and then you ride with them after watching them and you watch, watch brad and uh it's really funny he looks just like bradley wiggins does when he's riding a bike you know that flat back thing and the cadence is always super smooth. And he's in a, like one gear down to everyone else where his cadence is like spinning. It's quite interesting riding with these people, you know. But I've, we've been mates for a while, but, it's, you know, it's, it's not every day you get out for a ride and they come round your house for breakfast in the morning. 
I'm sure that would be really interesting. There'll be people in Leon C going, I think I saw Bradley Wiggins riding through Lee Broadway with Jurgen Klopp earlier. I've just been added a pint. Uh, thank you, Stuart. Um, the odds on uh, that journey ending without any unpleasant incidences, do you think? Slim to nil. Well, I'm sure we'll hear about it endlessly on uh, forthcoming editions of the uh, podcast. Uh, that's probably a good point to leave Stuart and his bizarre assortment of uh, companions. And that's it from this uh, podcast. Thank you to Ian. Thank you to Andy. Thank you to Maria. Um, don't forget to subscribe to the magazine so you can get the very special tour edition of Rouleur or go to the website and buy a copy. Thanks for listening. The Rouleur Long Reads podcast is along next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 